I probably should. So if you'd like to turn your Bibles back to that page, uh, which is 965, looking at Matthew chapter 1. When I was 17 or 18, I was uh, living over in the UK for a year. I got a letter from my brother which included the news, amongst other things, uh, that he'd spent a particularly boring afternoon at Grandma and Grandpa's place, where he endured looking at photos of dead people and photos of Grandma in glasses that made her look like a witch. (laughs) Family history is an interest more of the middle age, isn't it? A desire to discover where we come from, what our roots are, who we are. It's a subject that people can get really excited about when it's their own family history. But by and large, children and pretty much everyone else is far less interested in your family history than you are. And I think we tend to treat the biblical genealogies, the histories of uh, generations, in much the same way. They're long, they're boring, difficult to pronounce. Uh, A a critic did a review of the phone book uh, one time, uh, wrote a great cast of characters, but the plot lacks a little. And I think we look at genealogies and think something similar. Even the genealogies of Jesus. I don't expect this has ever been put to music. doesn't feature in Handel's Messiah. Even this so critical to the Christmas story barely rates a mention. doesn't feature in any nine lessons and carols. Are we having this reading tonight at the... We are. Oh, wonderful. No. So why is it here and why is it important? Well, there are a couple of reasons uh, that I want to draw out today. Firstly, Jesus' genealogy, the list of generations here, remind us that Christmas is no fairy tale. How do fairy tales typically begin? Once upon a time, which really means this probably never happened any place, any time, but we like to think in some distant Um, Things something like this might have once happened. But I wonder if we can often treat the Christmas story a bit like that. The Christmas story just kind of arrives out of the blue. Once upon a time, there was a man called Joseph who was engaged to a uh, a woman named Mary. And certainly even as we look at the Bible, it comes a bit out of the blue. There's been... 400 years of silence, 400 years of no history recorded, and then all of a sudden, Jesus arrives. So the importance of Jesus' genealogy is that it grounds his birth in history. This is no fairy tale. This is something that really happened. And indeed, it links it right back through the Old Testament. It begins with Abraham, who appears in the first bit of Genesis, the first book of the Bible. And so it says this is happening, it's grounded in all this history. You can look back through these names and see where they slotted into history. And so it means it's not just a nice idea, a nice story like a fairy tale, which might have some moral principles that we should take on board. 
No, it's a historical fact of what God has done with moral implications. And it reminds us too that God wasn't just kind of sitting back letting the world do its thing and suddenly the timer goes off, the alarm goes and he says, oh, I better do something about that. God didn't just intervene at one particular point in history. It reminds us that God has been at work throughout history. He's the God behind history for all time. Jesus' genealogy reminds us that Christmas is no fairy tale, that Jesus was a real person born into a real family in real times, and so we can't just dismiss it. Now, I don't know if you've looked much into your family history or you have those stories, just the best bits, right? The edited highlights that get passed down from generation to generation. Uh, on my mother's side, my great-great-great-grandmother's cousin's family were whiskey makers, whiskey distillers. Uh, and my great-great-great-grandmother's cousin married a young man called John Walker. And uh, her family taught him to make whiskey. There you go, that's my claim to fame. Uh, <laughs> further back on my father's side, we're descended from the great Graham of Montrose. Uh, who was a 17th century Scottish hero, a royalist, uh, wasn't keen on bishops but didn't want the Presbyterians in charge. Uh, and he was, uh, he was widely liked uh, until he shel sh uh, sought the shelter of the MacLeods, <laughs> who gave him up for money and he was hanged. <laughs> on another strain of my father's side, we're related to the Bose Lyons family. Of course, Elizabeth Bose Lyon uh, married the king and became the queen mother. So I'm a very distant relative of Queen Elizabeth. We like to tell the good bits of our story, but by and large, if, somebody, if I'm trying to impress somebody, that's not where I start, right? We start with our achievements, what we've done, or what our children and grandchildren are now doing. Uh, we boast of our achievements, our degrees hanging on the wall, our Instagram pics and our Facebook humble brags. But in Jesus' time, family, where you came from, who you were descended from, was far more important. It was like your resume. People in Jesus' time needed to know what tribe they came from, what clan they came from. What land was traditionally belonging to their family? And so their genealogies acted as resumes. Now, as far as resumes go, Jesus has some pretty good names on the list here. It begins, this is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. That summary is probably enough for most of us, right? We would have been happy to go on to verse 18 at that point. But they're the highlights, right? Son of David, son of Abraham. Two of the great figures of the Old Testament. Abraham, the father of a whole nation of Israel. David, the greatest king, the one who saw the establishment of Israel as a nation. Pretty good people to have in your genealogy as your resume. But the prominence of them there and elsewhere through there where they're kind of singled out 
is far greater than that because these two guys, not only are they the great figures of the Old Testament, but they're the recipients of God's great promises. So Abraham was taken from obscurity from another place, brought to the the land that would become Israel, and God promised him three things. Uh, And all our Sunday school kids who know the song will be able to tell you that God promised Abraham land, descendants, that he would make him a great nation, and blessing, that Abraham would be blessed by God, and that through Abraham, all the nations of the world would be blessed. Generations later, God made three great promises to King David. He promised David that he would make David's name great, that he would give him rest from all his enemies, and that he would establish his house, his household, his dynasty. 2 Samuel 7, The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors... I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. I will be his father and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod wielded by men, with floggings inflicted by human hands. But my love will never be taken away from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. And so when Matthew begins Jesus' genealogy by saying, this is the genealogy of of Jesus the Messiah, that means the Christ, the anointed one, God's promised king. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Matthew is saying, this is the one that God had promised. This is the one through whom all those promises to Abraham and to David would be fulfilled. This is the one, Jesus is the one who is the Messiah. The one who would bring everlasting peace, as Isaiah had promised. The one who would reign in righteousness, as the prophet Jeremiah had promised. The royal son who would inherit the nations as Psalm 2 predicted, the beloved son of a father who would inherit the kingdom promised to a righteous son of David. Jesus is the one that God had in mind when he made these promises a millennia before that David's son would sit on his throne. And it reminds us too of the providence of God. That 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 God is the one who controls the circumstances so that his will prevails and his purposes are fulfilled. And this has happened in spite of many of the people on that list and many of the people uh, through the history of Israel who sought to derail that. Jesus' genealogy is a record of God's faithfulness in preserving the children For the nation of Abraham, Abraham who was an old man with a barren wife when he was told you're going to be the father of many nations. God's faithfulness in preserving David and his line 
in spite of the disobedience of his people and their exile in Babylon. A reminder to us that God works in his time, but perfectly keeps his word. Our time is not God's time, but God works in his time to perfectly keep his word. And so even as we're reminded at Christmas that Jesus was the promised Prince of Peace, the one who would restore justice and righteousness, and we look around the world and say, well, how's that working out? Jesus' genealogy is a reminder that God works in his time but perfectly keeps his word. Jesus' genealogy is also a reminder of God's grace, his loving kindness shown to us. I don't know what your family Christmases are like. I don't know if you're looking forward to them. I was speaking to a friend who was dreading their family Christmas on his side last night. He was hoping enduring was his benchmark for success. If he could endure the family Christmas, uh, every family has the, you know, the cousin that no one wants to sit next to, the siblings who fell out 20 years ago and can't remember what they fell out about, but they just remember that they've fallen out. Broken families, separation by distance. Christmas can be difficult when we come from difficult families. But if you want to talk about difficult families, you have a look at this list on Jesus' genealogy. If a genealogy acts as a resume, which of course we're all selective, right? When it comes to our resumes, we just put the good points. We don't put the negatives, we don't put the irrelevant points, just the good points. This genealogy is selective too. There are some generations not included. But if it's selective, it's an interesting selection. As we'll see, it's hardly the resume for the one claiming to be the King of King and the Lord of Lords, God's perfect righteous King. Because only in Australia, not, not in other parts of the world, and certainly not in first century Israel, would you boast in having convict heritage, for instance. Most families try to keep those things a secret, those dubious marriages, the mistresses, the out-of-wedlock births, the criminal history... But Jesus' list here, his family, includes heroes and nobodies, outsiders and insiders, high-born, low-born, and a litany of moral failures. You think dealing with difficult family at Christmas can be hard. How do we deal with Jesus' difficult family? Let's have a look at some of the highlights. Firstly, it's often made the point that in genealogies, it's the male, certainly in this tradition, and the male line that's followed. Uh, there's some precedence for, for women getting cameo mentions there. But the women that are picked out in this genealogy are of significance. The first woman mentioned is in verse 3. Tamar, the mother of Perez and Zerah, by Judah. Now, Tamar was a Canaanite. The the enemies of Israel that they forced out of the land as they came into it. Uh, Tamar was also married to Judah's firstborn son. 
He died without leaving her any children, and as was the custom, Tamar was married to the next son, who also died without leaving her children. Uh, Judah failed to come good on his responsibilities to his daughter-in-law, which, as the custom said, was then to marry her off to the next available son. And so Tamar disguised herself as a prostitute, seduced her father-in-law, by whom she had two children. Not the highlight of the family album. (laughs) Verse 5, Rahab scores a mention. Rahab, the prostitute from Jericho, also a Canaanite. Her greatest act was to lie in order to protect the uh, Israelite spies. And yet she threw her uh, trust on the God of Israel and was welcomed into his people as a family. Another outsider included. Verse 5 again, Ruth, a Moabite. The Moabites were historical enemies of Israel. Judgment brought on them for their wickedness such that no Moabite was to be included in the people of God to the 10th generation. And yet here we have Ruth, a Moabite, who also threw a lot in with Israel and trusted in Israel's God, the God of all the world, and was included in his people. And the next woman, not mentioned by name, but not because Matthew couldn't remember it, to, but to highlight the circumstances of her involvement. Verse 6. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. In telling the genealogy, Matthew wants to remind people of the circumstances. David had a couple of wives himself, uh, but sought to sleep with Uriah, the Hittite's wife, Bathsheba. And then had Uriah killed in order to cover it up. So David, an adulterer and a murderer, the father of Solomon, the ancestor of Jesus. And then at the end we have Mary. But the list of men is also dubious. I mean, it starts with the patriarchs, Abraham. But even Abraham didn't trust God enough to come good on his promise that he thought, well, if I'm going to have descendants, I better have them through my wife's maidservant, Hagar, because my wife is not giving me any children. Isaac, Jacob, who, remember the smooth one who put on goat's hair to deceive his father and receive the birthright and the inheritance? Judah, we've heard about. We get to the list of kings. David, who we've had mention of. Solomon, who started good, started wise. uh, And then his 600 wives and 400 concubines and no doubt 1,000 mothers-in-law led him astray to worship other gods. Rehoboam, Solomon's son, whose stubbornness and lack of wisdom ended up in the kingdom of Israel being divided. You look through the list, there are some good kings in there, Asa, Jehoshaphat. Uh, Towards the end, Hezekiah was a great king. He reversed the uh, slide away from worshipping God. He smashed all the high places and re-established the faithful worship of God. A few generations later, Josiah had to do the same thing because the two in between 
Manasseh, in particular, were the worst of a really bad bunch. Manasseh listed in there is like having someone like Pol Pot listed in your family tree. Manasseh essentially tried the whole smorgasbord of false religions and established them all in, in Judah, built up all these things in opposition to God, worshipped everything except God's starry hosts. He even sacrificed his own son. Uh, the Old Testament says, Moreover, Manasseh also shed so much innocent blood that he filled Jerusalem from end to end beside the sin that he had caused Judah to commit so that they did evil in the eyes of the Lord. In fact, it was because of Manasseh, as the end of a long line of kings that, that led Judah astray, it was because of Manasseh that God said, Okay, I can't hold off judgment any longer. I will need to bring judgment against my people and take them into exile. But then there are the good guys and the bad guys, the heroes and the worst. And then there's a whole lot of people that we know next to nothing about. In fact, uh, the end of that list, after Zerubbabel, Everyone else we have no record of at all in the Bible. They're nobodies ending up in, even though they're in this royal line, descended from King David and the other kings, we end up with Joseph, a carpenter in the backwater of Nazareth. Like I suspect many of us in generations to come, they're just footnotes on the family tree. With that kind of a mix, what, what do we do with this? Why is it here? And how do we deal with this very difficult family at Christmas? Because as I said, if you want to establish yourself as the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, if Matthew wants to establish Jesus as the Messiah, God's promised one, why does he include this list of misfits and outsiders and ratbags and pure wickedness? Well, as a reminder to us of why Jesus came. A reminder that the good news of Jesus' birth is for all people, not just for Jews, but for outsiders, not just for men, but for women as well, not just for the perfect but for sinners. It reminds us of the gospel of grace that Jesus came from a line of heroes and nobodies, outsiders and moral failures, but he came to heroes and nobodies, outsiders and moral failures. He came for heroes and nobodies, outsiders and moral failures. It came for people like us that might have our moments, our heroic moments, but we too all have a bit of the others in us, outsiders, nobodies and moral failures. 
in Jesus Christ, both prostitute and king, both male and female, both Jew and Gentile, both moral and immoral, all sit down together at the family Christmas as equals. Equally sinful, equally lost, equally accepted and loved. It's a reminder to us that God has worked through these people as well. God has worked through heroes and nobodies, outsiders and moral failures. God can work even through you. And a reminder that we worship a God who knows our circumstances. A God who has come into the very mess of human life. The mess of broken families, of relationships, of hurt, of the damage and consequence of sin. A reminder too, that if God can show grace to a Canaanite prostitute, like Rahab, if God can show grace to an adulterous murderer like David, then why would we expect that he couldn't also show grace to us? The good news of Christmas is that God came to people like us in the person of Jesus that this is a real history that happened in real time, in real events, that God was behind all history to bring about his good purposes through those who recognised him and those who didn't. And God came to us in the person of Jesus to bring us his grace. Who thought family history could be so interesting? Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your great grace, your undeserved kindness that you show to all who turn to you in faith. We thank you for this reminder of who you are, of what you've done through history to bring about your good purposes. We thank you for this reminder of the kinds of people that you've used to bring that about and the kinds of people that you've come for. We thank you that Jesus is the one who knows our struggles, our pains and the mess of our lives. All the things that we're proud to put on a resume and all the things we want to hide far away. We thank you that he came even for us. We ask that you would give us the confidence that comes through trusting in him and knowing your grace and love. Amen.